and good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 28. That's where we're going to be this morning, Acts chapter 28. Uh, I am going to start in verse 11, Acts 28, verse 11. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Pudioli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet, to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the testimony and the story of your men and women from the early church who were faithful to your mission in the face of rejection and loneliness and distraction and fear. We pray as we study your word today, as you bring us to the end of the book of Acts, we ask that we would take heart from the example of Paul, knowing that if your spirit is with us, if your people are present with us. We have no need to fear. And I pray we would remain steadfast in the mission you've called us to. As we study your word, Lord, I pray, open our minds that we would have wisdom and understanding 
to know what your word says. Remove the distractions from our minds. I pray, move in our hearts that you would take away our doubt, our fear, our rebellion against you, and then empower our hands and our feet to go out into our world and serve you. We love you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been privileged to be the college pastor here for nine years. And uh, in that time, our interns have pulled a number of pranks on me. Throughout the years, they, they usually focus their pranks around my office. Uh, some of the pranks have been funnier than others. Uh, some of them have been appropriate, some not so appropriate. Uh, but some of them, a few of them, have been very well executed and uh, bordering on brilliant. One of my favorites happened a few years ago, right around Christmas time. As we were wrapping up the semester, uh, there were maybe two weeks before Christmas, and I had just finished my last college class of the semester, and I came into my office, and they had totally decorated my office for Christmas. Uh, Let me show you a little bit of what they did. Uh, When I first opened the door, there was this uh, life-size animatronic Santa Claus standing right at the door. Uh, It terrified me, all right? I opened the door, and he was staring me in the face, and I thought that an intruder had gotten into my office. I jumped back. I yelled uh, until I realized that it was just a plastic statue. Beyond that, though, you can see the Christmas tree in the background. Uh, You can see that there's wrapping paper on my desk. Uh, They went on, and they wrapped every single book on my bookshelf like a gift, Uh, every single one. Now, it wasn't... Actually, just the books, uh, the pins on my desk were wrapped. Everything on my desk was wrapped like a gift. And you can see the uh, chain links here of little paper chain that they put together in my office, the Christmas tree. Uh, They also, along the ceiling, put all of these snowflakes and stars and Christmas trees. Uh, Those things were also littering the floor. You can see the stocking. Uh, So I came in, and this was just dazzling. And uh, I have to be honest, at first... Uh, I was scared when I saw Santa, but then I loved it. Uh, This was the most festive my office had ever looked and has ever looked since. Uh, Now, I will say it was fortunate that they did this right before Christmas as things were slowing down, because although I enjoyed it, uh, it was impossible to work in there. Uh, Every time I sat down and tried to do anything uh, for about the next week, my mind would immediately be distracted, and I started thinking about Christmas. I wanted to be done. And how I wanted to go home with my family and just celebrate Christmas. And so I'd start to study or start to work on something. And I'd look up and I'd start singing Jingle Bells or whatever it may be. You know, I just couldn't fully focus. I'm easily distracted at times when there's something to be distracted by. All right, now it may be that you can relate to that. Uh, As you are approaching the end of the semester, it may be that you find yourself distracted from your studies. Uh, So as you sit down to study, maybe there's a major event happening in your life that keeps you from focusing. Uh, Maybe it is a romantic interest, either one that you hope to connect with, uh, one that you are currently connecting with, or one that you previously did and are no more, and it's keeping you from studying. Maybe it is that as you need to write that final paper, there's so much happening on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram that seems more important, and so every couple of minutes you go back to that and you find yourself distracted. Maybe it's a roommate who is cranky and irritable or who is distracting or loud, and you have a hard time focusing. We live in a world of distractions. And if you're like me, it's hard for us to focus on a task even for a couple of hours. 
And and where I think that that can become even more dangerous is it's not only hard to focus on short-term tasks, but I think the more subtle area where distraction affects us is when we begin to think about the purpose and meaning of our life. If you're in college and you're beginning to set the direction for your life and you say, these are the patterns and the habits I want to arrange my life around, and maybe you say, I want my life to count for eternity, and so I want to arrange my life around the values of God, around the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's where I want to direct my energy and attention for my life. And as you begin to do that, what you're going to find is that there will be multiple distractions, whether you're already facing them or whether you will in the future. Uh, Whether those distractions happen now because they are distractions of wanting always to invest all of your time and energy in your studies or in your social relationships. Down the line, it will be your career, your family, your finances, and you have all of these things that pull and tug at you. Not to mention the fact that we live in a world that is often hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so we can be distracted because we're pulled away from the gospel because people don't like it. And so if you're distracted in the short term, like I am, the danger is that we become distracted in the long term, and we lose focus on those things that really matter. What I love about the book of Acts is that in the book of Acts, we get a glimpse of some men and women who were laser focused on the mission God had called them to do. And if you'll remember a long time ago, but back in the fall when we started the book of Acts, as Jesus ascends into heaven, he charges his disciples to go out into all of the world to preach the gospel, beginning in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And so the apostles go out and they do exactly that. And what we see through the book of Acts is despite persecution, despite fear, despite distraction, despite imprisonment, despite loneliness, they remain laser focused on that task. And as we come down to the end of the book of Acts, we see the apostle Paul remaining focused on the mission of Jesus Christ when it would be very easy for him to drop it. Because he's a prisoner, he's just experienced shipwreck, he probably feels all alone, and his own people are rejecting the message that he's preaching. And yet as the book of Acts closes, we see Paul taking every opportunity to share Jesus Christ. The mission of this church The mission of those of us who have the privilege of serving you is that when you walk out these doors after however many years you're here, you will invest your life with single-mindedness on the mission of Jesus Christ. And that when you hit the end of your life, just as we hit the end of the book of Acts today, when you hit the end of your days, you'll look back and you say, I wasn't distracted. Although there were pressures and temptations and fears I remained focused that my mission in life is to know Jesus Christ. As Paul says, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then I want to proclaim him at every opportunity I have. That's what we see in the life of Paul. As we look at Acts 28 this morning, we'll see a few themes that emerge from Acts 28 that I think will help keep us focused on our mission when we're tempted to to divert from it. Things that I think helped Paul, things that I think will help us as you seek to pursue Jesus Christ. The first one is this. You're not alone. As you pursue the mission of God, as you pursue 
proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and knowing him. You're not alone. Look again at verses 11 through 16. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had been wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. If you remember last week, uh, they had a massive shipwreck on their way to Rome. They landed on the Isle of Malta. Now what we see in verses 11 through 16 is the remainder of their journey. After they get a new ship, they travel to Rome where Paul will eventually stand before the emperor, stand before Caesar, and present his case for why he is not guilty in a way that deserves death. He's going to present the gospel to the emperor. Well, he reaches Rome... And he finds right away that he's not alone. Now remember, he's on a ship, he's a prisoner, he had companions on the ship, but his own people, the Jewish people, had rejected his message. They're the ones that sent him away and wanted him executed. Despite the fact that Paul might have felt alone, he wasn't. And as they come to Rome, there's a group of believers that are already there. Paul's never been to Rome before. How did these men and women know who Paul was? Because prior to this, he had written them a letter, the book of Romans, which you find right after the book of Acts. And it is Paul's detailed theological exposition of who Jesus is, and that all have sinned, and yet the death and resurrection of Christ brings eternal life. And a group of people, having read that letter, had begun to grow in Jesus Christ. And now when Paul arrives at Rome, they travel. 30, 40 miles away from their home to greet him, to say, come into our house, share meals with us. We want to care for you. And he's not alone. Every single one of us is afraid of being all alone. One of my worst fears is showing up at a costume party dressed like, you know, the dragon smog from The Hobbit or something, and you walk in and nobody else is wearing a costume, right? Like, rawr! And someone's like, Hi, I'm Bob, right? And there's this awkwardness because you're out there all by yourself. Maybe that's happened to you. I hope not. No doubt it has happened to you that you've shown up at some event inappropriately dressed, right? Everybody else is wearing a suit and tie and you're wearing jeans and a t-shirt. And it's mortifying because we hate standing out. We hate being alone. We don't like being rejected. Um, I'll admit about a week and a half ago, I had to get up early to be here at a meeting about seven in the morning. And as I walked out of my house, I hadn't anticipated how cold it was going to be outside. So I was wearing a short sleeve shirt and it was dark and it was early. I ran back into the house and I just grabbed the first sweater I could find, which happened to be a bright blue hoodie uh, with a camp name written across the top of it. So here I was going to an elder meeting, uh, dressed kind of nice. And I walked in and I'm in this bright blue hoodie and I sit down and I sit through the meeting in my hoodie. And after the meeting, one of my coworkers goes, cute hoodie. And uh, I looked down, and I was like, oh no. And I immediately, I have to admit that even though I'm a full-grown man, my, my heart and my mind flashed back to junior high. And I thought, they're making fun of my clothes, right? 
So I, I did, and I, I'm ashamed to admit this. I walked back to my office and I took off the hoodie and I didn't show it the rest of the day. I was cold, but at least I wasn't being mocked. All right? And the reality is that none of us like that feeling of being out there all alone. And so I think when it comes to presenting the gospel, we're afraid because we think we're all by ourselves. When you're standing in this room and you're worshiping Jesus and you're singing the songs and you look around and you see a lot of people with you, it's easy to be bold. But when you go to class, when you go to work, when you leave A&M one day or Blinn and you go into the working world and you move away, there will be those times when you will feel all alone. One of the most uh, poignant moments in the life of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament happened right after the great event that we all know about where he has this showdown with the prophets of Baal, remember, and they dance around the statue of Baal trying to make it rain and nothing happens. And then Elijah sets up this altar and God sends fire down from heaven and consumes the offering and then it begins to rain. Immediately after that event, Elijah runs away because King Ahab and his idolatrous wife Jezebel were chasing him down and they wanted to kill him. And so Elijah runs away and he's in the wilderness. And while he's there, God appears to him. And instead of falling on his knees and worshiping God, you know what Elijah does? He looks at God and he says, hey, I have been serving you faithfully. I have proclaimed that you are the only God. And you know what? I'm the only one left in all of Israel. And now they want to kill me too. So just let me die. And God says, Elijah, get up, go back to Judah. You anoint a new king for Israel. You anoint a new king for Judah. And by the way, I have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. God will not allow his people to dwindle to nothing. The book of 1 Peter Peter was writing to a group of Christians who were scattered far and wide and they were afraid and they were being persecuted and they were tempted to give up the faith and the devil was tempting them. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Other men and women are experiencing what you experience. That encourages Paul as he goes to Rome. Peter uses it to encourage other believers. And for you and me, I think God will use the truth that there are other men and women who are serving Jesus Christ to shore up our spirits and give us the strength to persevere. There there will come that day, if it hasn't already come, when you feel totally alone because of your testimony for Jesus Christ. What you do in that day is you remember this day, this moment. And you're gathered together with other men and women. If you haven't yet, as we worship in a little bit, look around you. Listen to the voices next to you of men and women who are worshiping Jesus and know that all around the world, God is raising up men and women for that purpose so that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be represented. You're not alone. And in the moments when you feel alone, you draw closer to Jesus and then you draw closer to his people, just as Paul did. 
And that keeps us from being distracted from our mission. When you're alone, you're tempted to give up. When you're part of an army, it's easier to persevere. Not only are you not alone, but just because you're rejected doesn't mean you're wrong. Verses 17 to 28, what happens is Paul gathered together the Jewish men who were the leaders of the Jewish community. He said, I want to share with you what God has told me and what Jesus has revealed to me. And the, and the people say, all right, tell us what you believe. And Paul tells them, look, I was arrested by the Romans and the Jewish people did not want to let me go, even though they were going to let me go. The Romans were going to let me go. So they sent me here. I had to appeal to Caesar. And the Jewish people say, we've never heard of you, but we've heard of this Christianity thing. Tell us what it's about. And so Paul takes all day, morning to evening, and says he laid out the truth about the kingdom of God, who Jesus is. He tied Jesus back to the prophets, and he told them Jesus Christ came so we could be saved. He's the hope of Israel. He's the one who will establish his kingdom through God's people. You know what happens at the end. They listen, and a few people believe, but the majority don't. They begin to fight. They begin to argue. Then they walk away. And Paul experiences what for most of us would be a devastating rejection. A devastating rejection. And yet he perseveres. None of us likes to be rejected either. Men, many of you know what it's like to be rejected by a young lady, right? And if she tells you no when you pursue her, you take that as a sign that you should what? Hopefully stop, right? And ladies, if you reject him, you're hoping that he'll take that as a clue. Stop, right? When you're a kid, People tell you not to do something. You don't like the disapproval of others, do you? And so you stop. And we are preconditioned to hate rejection. And so again, when it comes to the gospel and we proclaim it, and someone says, how could you believe Jesus is the only way to God? How narrow, how intolerant, how hateful. You don't belong among us. And they reject you. Temptation is back and stop and not to be faithful and not to persevere and yet Paul does I think the reason Paul does is because he, he is convinced that Jesus is the hope of Israel not only that but he knows that God God is working right? and God has a plan even in the midst of this seeming chaos right? even in the midst of this rejection God is working It's interesting, if you look at the book of Romans, Paul actually addresses in a section of the book of Romans uh, the rejection of Jesus by his own people. Romans 9 through 11, the question is, if Jesus is the Messiah, why have the Jewish people rejected him? Paul faces that four or five times in the book of Acts. His own people reject him. When we get to the book of Romans, verse 11, or chapter 11, he says this, I say then they, meaning the Jews, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, 
Paul sees God's hand even in the midst of this rejection. And he says there is coming a day when God's people will be gathered back together and they'll believe. But in the meanwhile, he's allowed them to reject so that Gentiles can come and hear about Jesus. That will spur God's people to jealousy and they'll want him also. So Paul doesn't shy away from speaking the truth. He preaches the gospel over and over and over again, even in the face of rejection. I think often we're way too worried about whether people like the message that we're preaching. Because we're way too worried about whether people like us. No, I am. And so when we get any hint of rejection, we pull away. I can remember working at a job shortly after graduating college. Set a print shop. Got into a conversation with a coworker one day who was not a Christian. Began to share the gospel and she immediately pulled up short and said, I don't want to talk about this. And backed away. And for the rest of the week, wouldn't really make eye contact with me. And my temptation at that moment is to go, what did I do wrong? Instead of to say, what is God doing through his message that I don't see? Can I trust him enough to recognize that rejection doesn't always mean that I'm wrong? But that God may have a plan I don't understand right now. And that helps Paul persevere. He knows he is right where God wants him. And so he continues to preach the gospel. Not only does he recognize rejection doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong, and he also knows that every, every situation is an opportunity. Every situation, no matter how bleak, no matter how dark, no matter how difficult, is an opportunity. Look at the very end of chapter 28. Paul is in house arrest. He's in a house. He cannot leave. He's there for two years. Verse 30, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Paul's there for two years. Now, if you ask me, if I'm in a house and I cannot leave for two years and I'm in prison, all right, there's no cable TV, there's no internet, there's no iPad, no iPhone, nothing. He's chained to a guard for two years. He can't go around and preach the gospel. My temptation would be to say, this is wasted time. Just let me sleep through most of this. But Paul sees it as an opportunity to share the message of Jesus. So everybody who comes in, he shares. It is that time of the year when some of your friends are probably getting engaged. Uh, Some of them are headed toward marriage. Not right? Yay. Okay. So, uh, in fact, one of our own uh, interns, Andrew, got engaged just uh, last night. All right? Now, if you have a friend who's engaged or headed toward marriage, you know that there is no conversation that cannot be directed back to that, right? So, you know, we're going to go to Chili's tonight. I love Chili's. I love my fiance, right? Did I hear your phone ring? No, but there's a ring on my finger, right? Okay. There is no conversation that cannot be pulled back to that because their heart is gripped with the joy of their love. And they want you to know about it. So they talk, ladies, with their hands, right? So you can see the ring. Because every opportunity, every moment is a chance to speak of that love. That's how Paul felt about Jesus. 
He's sitting in house arrest for two years. Can't go anywhere. Can't see anybody other than those who come to visit him. And yet he shares the gospel with the guards, with the visitors, with the officials, with everybody who comes in because he believes even as he sits as a prisoner, God's purpose for him is not done. And I think if you and I were to come face to face with Paul this morning, what would ooze out of him would be his desire for you and me to know what Jesus had done for him. He would say, Jesus died and rose again for me so that I can know him, so that I can proclaim him, so that I can be his vessel of mercy in a broken world. And that's the mission of my life. And I don't care who you are, if you're a Roman guard, if you're a person of my own race persecuting me, or if you're a friend, or if you're an enemy, I want you to know about Jesus Christ. And so he preached it at every moment. As Paul headed toward his own execution, in Rome, ultimately at the hands of Caesar Nero. He wrote the letter of 2 Timothy. Maybe during this imprisonment, maybe during a future imprisonment. 2 Timothy is his letter that he wrote to a young man, Timothy, who was in Ephesus, who was pastoring the flock of Jesus Christ in Ephesus, the people in Ephesus. And he writes this to Timothy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living And the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You get that? There's no season to preach Jesus Christ. It's not like planting flowers in the spring, harvesting a crop in the fall. It's not like the rules about when you can wear white pants or shoes or whatever it may be. There's no season, every moment, every day, every opportunity is the season. And Paul will not be distracted from that because he believes the message to be true. Even in the face of persecution, even in the face of fear, even in the face of uncertainty. And I wonder at times, if Paul felt the same tug that you and I do toward comfort and prestige and glamour and just wanted to avoid all the trouble. So we find him in 1 Timothy 6, another letter to Timothy, actually talking about money. And he says, you know what? I've learned how to do with a lot. I've learned how to do with a little. It doesn't really matter. You know why? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the secret. You want to know contentment. Know Jesus Christ. If you want to remain focused on the mission he's placed you here for, know him deeply. Preach him boldly. And don't allow yourself to get distracted to the right or to the left. It will be harder and harder as life goes on to remain true to that mission. My prayer for each of us in this room for you guys in particular, as you go through college, is that you will set that course now. That You will decide now, this is what my life's about. Whatever job you have, whatever your family looks like, whomever you marry, you will say, this is what my life is about. And I want to focus on it. 
in a world that offers so much distraction and so many opportunities to turn away. So like we see Paul at the end of Acts 28, when we hit the end of our life, we remain absolutely laser-focused on the mission Jesus has called us to. I pray that's your heartbeat. That's what the book of Acts, that's what the New Testament calls us to because Jesus died and rose again. And if he's alive, and if we know him, his spirit lives in us and calls us to do his work and allows us to know him deeply. We're going to sing a few songs to close. And as we do, the thing that I want us to pray is that God will give us focus. As you head into finals, as you study for finals, as you go away for the summer, pray that God will give you a laser-focused heart on the things of his kingdom, that you'll put everything in the perspective of Jesus Christ so that you can live your life as a vessel of his mercy and grace to preach him, to proclaim him, to know him without being distracted, without losing heart, without giving up until the day you meet him or until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in Jesus Christ we have the assurance that sin is broken, death holds no power over us. We praise you because your spirit lives within us, because you sent him to be with us, to remind us of the truth, to empower us to do your will. And so, Father, we pray that as we go out this week, you would keep us focused on the mission you've called us to do. And above all else, I pray you would keep us focused on Jesus and what he has done as the motivation for our work and as the source of our power. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.